0: Welcome to the BIV Today podcast. I'm Kirk Lapointe. I'm Tyler Orton. The so-called nightmare of Amsterdam, Murek Milan, is visiting Vancouver this week on behalf of the city's hospitality sector. The former nightclub promoter sits down with the BIV team to offer tips on how city officials and business owners can better coordinate and improve the entire region's nighttime entertainment
1: industry. After that conversation, we're going to sit down with Bill Robson. He is the CEO and president of the CD Howe Institute think tank. He's going to talk to us about the striking differences in fiscal transparency throughout senior levels of government across Canada. We're specifically narrowing in on the B.C. provincial government, of course. They have a new report that shows that the province is actually falling significantly behind in this regard over the past year.
0: And later on in in our podcast, Open Media Executive Director Laura Tribe is going to join us. She's going to explain the backlash behind the new regulatory mandate aimed at offering low-cost, all-data mobile plans. And she's also going to discuss why Canadians should be paying attention to the new privacy regulations going into effect at the end of the month in the EU. Welcome to the BIB Today podcast.
2: Haley Wooden.
1: I'm Tyler Orton. Haley, I remember it was in 2007. That's the first time I ever visited Amsterdam. Mm. I was there with some friends. We're checking out a concert at uh, the Paradiso, which is a very cool venue that they've got there. And afterwards, we went out, hit the nightlife. It was rowdy. I have to admit, (laughs) uh, Amsterdam had a rowdy nightlife at the time. But since 2014, Amsterdam actually has elected its first so called nightmare. This is an official whose job it is to liaise between those in the nightlife business and the city. And it actually seems to be working here. They've seen big drops-offs with regards to, say, public intoxication, complaints, etc. So the question is, can Vancouver learn some of the lessons that this city of Amsterdam is doing right now? And with us today is Marek Milan. He is the Nightmare of Amsterdam. He is in Vancouver this week talking to a lot of stakeholders here. Merrick, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today.
3: Hi, thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Merrick, tell me, what was job number one when you first endeavored onto this journey as Nightmare over in Amsterdam?
3: Yeah, so the Nightmare is an independent nonprofit. We helped ensure that the city of Amsterdam has a dynamic and vibrant nightlife. We really want to bridge the gap between the municipality, so mayor and city councillors, small business owners like nightclubs and festivals, but also city residents. We always say by having a dialogue, you can change the rules of the game. So why is it so important to have this dialogue? Because cities benefit from having a vibrant nightlife from social, cultural, and economic perspective. And um, uh, you can really see that uh, by working together, we can create a vibrant city, but also make it more safe at night.
2: Interesting. Why have or create something like a nightmare? Why couldn't, say, the city and the existing stakeholders have those discussions? Why did you need or why did the city think that it needed this new position?
3: Yeah, it's really difficult to penetrate the city's nightlife from your office in City Hall, and we really function as a liaison, as a go-between between, uh, between nightlife, but also city residents and uh, and the industry. Because if you really like, uh, we we truly believe that if you want to influence people's behaviour so they so they behave better at night, you need to work together with the industry and influence their behaviour from bottom up. Uh, through our projects um, uh, on our most important entertainment district, same as grandville um, district here in Vancouver, we managed to get down alcohol-related harm by 25% and reports of nuisance uh, littering people shouting at the street, on the street antisocial behavior by 30%. So this is a significant change, and, but you really need to have an, an, a 360 and holistic approach for this. And um, that is something which is relatively new and is now picked up all around the world.
1: Well, did you face any pushback from people when you guys were proposing a lot of the changes? Was there reluctance to enact some of the stuff that you were suggesting?
3: Uh, Yes, of course. Um, We always say uh, no is the first step to yes. Uh, But (laughs) we need to serve people with facts instead of emotions. When it comes to a lot of nightlife policy, it's often based on um, uh, it's too loud, it's uh, too long, there's too much crime, et cetera. But we really need to look at the facts and try to uh, work from uh, um, effect based um, uh, solutions um, for cities around the uh, globe. It's really important uh, to other cities. Berlin is a big example of how a vibrant nightlife can can really um, increase uh, a creative industry. The tech, for example, the tech industry in in uh, in Berlin. Uh, really build up also because it was a it was a vibrant and, and cool city to live in and these young creatives really want to uh, live there um, when I'm now hearing that Vancouver that there's 3,000 jobs being created by Amazon you need to make sure that your city is as attractive as possible and of course you need good housing and good roads and good service but you also need to have a good and rich cultural offering uh, at night Uh, Because with with, um, uh, the globalization, which is happening nowadays, people are really easy to pick up their stuff and move somewhere else. So for Amsterdam, it's really important to have this vibrant nightlife because it really attracts these young creative people. Um, It it keeps the human capital uh, in in the city. And that's what drives our economics.
2: Well, as a nightmare, what would you suggest or maybe the, the most important elements to creating a vibrant nightlife in any city?
3: So um, our approach is always to invest in uh, in quality and invest in the diversity of the nightlife. We really believe that having a culturally um, a culturally diverse and rich uh culturally rich nightlife can lead to a more social and ethnic inclusive city. Um, but to do so, we need to um, uh, uh, relax certain um, uh, legislation. But on the other hand, also make sure that we, that we focus uh, on uh, clamping down on the downside. The night has an upside and a downside. And uh, we need to elevate the upside, but um, uh, minimize the, the negative effects to dance. Well,
1: how do we go about minimizing some of those negative effects? And can you give an example of that, for instance?
3: Yeah, so uh, in an in entertainment district called Rembrandtplein, uh, we um, uh, had an approach working together uh, with the industry and City Hall uh, it was a public-private funded project, and we looked at three things. We looked at the public space, how is the public space set up, how is uh, the lighting set up. We worked together with a project called Designing Out Crime, and it really looked at is there a gentle flow to the public space. Uh, the second thing we did was we instead installed square hosts. These are um, um, uh, uh, these are social workers that patrol the streets every Friday and Saturday night, uh, similar to a project here in uh, in Vancouver uh called the good night out but these this is uh, uh trained uh, staff um and uh they are the eyes and ears of the police uh, police at night in this entertainment district so they everything that we can do everything that we can do to uh relieve the pressure on our law enforcement is a positive step forward and the first thing we did we installed a mobile website a simple device that connects city residents to the first community officer which is in the neighborhood And this is a really efficient communication. Also, out of the data, it's shown that um, when there's a report of a nuisance of any sort, the um, uh, law enforcement or or the community officer were around the corner, but not really on that spot. I have a city resident resident, um, uh, group chairman saying this approach, it really changed my life. And um, I just mentioned before, 25% decline in alcohol-related harm, 30% declines of reports of nuisance of any sort.
2: We're speaking to Merrick Milan. He's the night mayor of the city of Amsterdam in Vancouver this week to talk to Hospitality Vancouver Association and some other stakeholders here. Now, in Vancouver and town, I'm not sure what the hours are, but sometimes Vancouver's nightlife gets a knock for having venues close Early.
1: Well, it's uh, the joke is we, we show up at seven o'clock and we leave by 10 o'clock. Yeah, like that's kind of the Vancouver life <laughs> to a certain degree. Yeah. Exactly. And it's
2: certainly not the case in other major cities. So, America, I'm curious how important sort of the hours are to creating a vibrant nightlife.
3: Yeah. So um, uh, roughly you can say that in, in, in major cities, but also smaller cities like Amsterdam, London, like one in eight jobs is connected to the nighttime economy. And uh, um, our job is not only focusing on entertainment and nightlife, it's really the nighttime economy and also taking care of the workforce that that works late at night. Um, In Amsterdam, we had an approach that we really invest in in the quality of the nightlife and that is also we give out licenses based on the creative content these venues produce so we want to give something to the operators that 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 create diversity and create inclusion in our nightlife we want to give them a little bit more room to operate to to later uh, later hours i understand that for a lot of cities really radical to say hey that we need to have longer uh, later uh, closing hours or last call instead of um uh, less but spreading the people out overnight and trying to um, get a different, um, uh, get a different group of stakeholders. Uh, excuse me. Um, to get um, uh, the different target group, to separate them and spread them out over the night, is actually a, something which had a really positive effect in Amsterdam, because when the venues close, they all close at the same time. So suddenly you have um, thousands of people on the street late at night. Mm-hmm. And Um, uh, more, more, better mobility and ride sharing, of course, is still not installed here in in, in Vancouver. And I hope it will be very soon because better mobility leads to more safety because people can uh, get get home easier and and you don't have uh, um, troubles with it. But also it also leads to more inclusion because uh, people uh, can travel easily to places where they want to go.
1: Uh, Merrick, you're not the first guest of ours who has implored both British Columbia and the city of Vancouver to get this uh, mobility, uh, you know, vehicle sharing going on with regards to Uber and Lyft. And, and the other thing is that you know Haley and I we, we both grew up out in the suburbs and mm-hmm. making that arduous journey from the suburbs into the city of Vancouver and then back again to get home when we're you know in our very young club going years. You know it, it was it was a bit of a challenge and what can we do to maybe kind of spread the nightlife out a little bit to different smaller centers so that, that it's easier for people that live across the region
3: so um, uh, our approach was to um, uh, our approach was to uh, give out licenses to not to venues in the city center but more on the outskirts of the city to create to create um, uh, to create uh, so that you have not only one city center with an entertainment district, but also uh, uh, that, o- that also um, you have other districts which are interesting. We truly believe that uh, that a modern-day nightclub should always be multidisciplinary. So that means that this, this uh, venue has a bar, a gallery, co-working space, a nightclub, of course, and all these things, because then the, the people that live around this venue also benefit from the fact that the venue is there. And uh, this really helped to develop more the outskirts of our city. Um, and it, it really created a new form of nightlife.
1: Hmm. You know, I, I like the ambient sounds with the sirens going because it really <laughs> reminds me of uh, the Grandville Strip, uh, you know, late at night. Yeah. And,
3: you know, but I'm curious. I, 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 ju- I just spoke in City Hall, so I'm across the street from City Hall. And uh, we're hoping to hear the outcome of a report. So that, that's why there's some noise in the background. Uh, but law enforcement is a really par- important part of of nightlife policy, of course.
1: Well, absolutely, and and we do see a presence on, say, uh, you know, the Granville Strip, and overall, you've had the chance to take a look at it. What what do you make of that entertainment district that we have here in uh, downtown Vancouver?
3: Um, I think that, like, I understand that people that are looking at it from the outside will say, "Oh, this is this is just an entertainment. This is just an entertainment district uh, where a lot of young people go to." I go to have a lot of drinks. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what, what is, not, is not so visible, but it's really important to say, is that in all these nightclubs and or where all these live music shows are being held, there's a lot of talent development going on there for the creative industry. So think about all the photographers, filmmakers, DJs, VJs, of course, live musicians, even uh, my own story production management and PR. These are all creative jobs that people that people learn by working in, at these venues and working at, the, at these nightlife establishments. So it's not only drinking and dancing. Like when there's a lot of people drinking and dancing, there's also a lot of people working.
2: Hmm. One last quick question before we let you go, Mirik Do you have to stay up all night to be Nightmare?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I don't. No, no. Um, um, I call myself a rebel in a suit. And, and that, uh, the, the reason why is that you need to speak the same language to get something done. If uh, we work really closely together with city councillors, we help them to bring topics on the table and to get that on the agenda. Because um, when you can't vote about something, nothing will change. So that's why we need to close work during the day closely to our um, uh, elected officials.
1: Well, Merrick, a lot of great ideas, and I appreciate you sharing them on the show. I think we could all see some changes going on in Vancouver. But for now, uh, thank you for joining us on Business in Vancouver.
3: Thank you so much.
1: That's Mirk Milan. He is Nightmare of the City of Amsterdam. Coming up next, we're going to speak to Bill Robson. He's a president and CEO of the CD Howe Institute. Kirk, I recall back. When I just got out of J school, a bit of a baptism fire by fire for me was when I was handed all the financial statements from the province and I was told, make heads and tails of this, sir, get on it. And I was (laughs) like, oh, well.
0: Yeah. You know, they don't teach you in school to read income statements and financial statements and Ah. look at balance sheets all that much unless you're taking business courses. It's tough. It's a tough thing to do.
1: You can try to learn through osmosis to a certain degree. But uh, the big question is right now, would a motivated but non-expert reader be able to crack open the BC government's financial statements and make sense of what the province is up to with regards to our taxes. Now, the C.D. Howe Institute think tank here in Canada, it's been examining financial statements from senior levels of government across the country to measure fiscal transparency. And with us to discuss how BC fares compared with other provinces, it is Bill Robson. He's a president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Bill, thanks for joining us on the show.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Bill, what uh, what constitutes transparency in, uh, in the realm of uh, financial statements from governments? You touched on
4: a key uh, attribute or a, a key criterion you'd use uh, in your conversation just now, and that is whether a person who is motivated and, and understands basic numbers, like nothing fancy, just adding and subtracting, uh, could come to a set of financial statements and pick out confidently the key numbers. So if we think of when a government releases its budget, uh, typically a person would start with front cover, start flipping pages, and the headline numbers would be the revenues, total revenues, comprehensive revenues, total expenditures, and then the difference between them, a surplus or a deficit. Uh, If it's at the end of the year, same thing with the public accounts that contain the government's financial results. Uh, Start at page one and can you, uh, when they appear, confidently identify the key numbers? Um, That's not tremendously difficult in principle to do and in fact, uh, although we are critical of some things that British Columbia does, it's not. uh, It's actually one of the better provinces in that regard. Uh, The federal government, uh, just to jump ahead here to a real villain of the piece in their latest budget, the key numbers did not appear until page 351 uh, in the second annex. So you might ask, like, what on earth is a budget about if it's not about giving you those numbers up front? So there's a lot of variation. Uh, yeah. But a person ought to be able to start at page one and come across those numbers quickly, and be able to say, "These are the numbers. These are the key numbers."
0: I knew I shouldn't have stopped reading at page three forty-nine. Uh, you're so close, Kirk. Oh man, it was tight. Uh, but in these cases, is it um, when you say the real numbers? Uh, it's it it's often uh, the real description of the numbers too, isn't it?
4: well there are a couple of things that matter a great deal one of them and here's an area where british columbia does have some problems is whether the uh, auditor general approves the numbers or not we have in canada uh we've had for uh, since the 1980s public sector accounting standards uh they may not be perfect i mean i i, I i'd, I'd uh, quibble with some aspects of them but there is a set of standards out there now that governments are supposed to adhere to and over the years, by and large, governments, federal governments, provincial and territorial governments have gotten better about adhering to those standards. But there are exceptions. Unfortunately, British Columbia is one of them. And so when you get to those key numbers in British Columbia's case, you've got a reservation by the auditor saying that this is not necessarily the kind of recognition of revenue and expense that, uh, that we want to see. So there's the question about the... Uh, You know, the the headline numbers being clear and clearly presented, that's good. Uh, But if there's a problem from the point of view of the audit, uh, that's another thing. And uh, you asked about the context of them. I'll just mention one thing that is uh, very straightforward to either help or impede people in understanding these numbers. Suppose you get to the end of the year and you've got the results and you're wondering, well, did they do what they said they would do in the budget? In some uh, provinces and in, in some uh, in, in the case of the federal government, the answer is pretty easy to get. You look at the results, they show you what they said they would do in the budget, and then there'd be a, a discussion of what the variances were, did revenue come in ahead or behind the projections and so on. Um, some provinces and, and the federal government are better at that than others. So, yeah, there's, there are a number of things that you want to ask once you've found these numbers. How reliable are they, and are they are you given the kind of context that would help you understand what's going on?
1: Well, you guys handed out letter grades to all the provinces here in Canada, and I'm wondering where Vancouver. I should. I'm sorry. I should say BC. I'm such a Vancouver-centric guy, unfortunately, in this situation. But uh, how does BC stack up versus other provinces? Who are some of the leaders right now?
4: Well, before I, because you mentioned Vancouver, let me just quickly say that uh, we also look at the cities uh, across Canada, and if you have ever. Uh, looked at a municipal budget and wondered, is this just me that this is so confusing? Uh, The answer is no, it's not you. Uh, Cities are a whole other world, and if we rated them on the same report card, they'd be getting uh, Ds at best and mostly Fs. Uh, British Columbia gets a B Mm -hmm. minus. That sounds kind of middle of the pack, and it is. Uh, The the best provinces this year were uh, Alberta and New Brunswick. And uh, uh, what I'll just quickly say about them as the leaders is that uh, they haven't always been at the top of the class. In fact, Alberta a few years ago had a budget presentation that nobody could figure out, all kinds of uh, different ledgers, and it was, I think, deliberately confusing. Uh, that became a bit of an issue, and they cleaned up their act. they in A-plus this year. Uh, New Brunswick also, same thing, very clean numbers. And also uh, a quick compliment to both of them. Uh, they publish in a very timely way. In fact, New Brunswick uh, gets a gold star for presenting its budget in January, so way before the fiscal year begins. Uh, there are other provinces that, uh, that present their budgets after the fiscal year has already started. Yeah. Uh, British Columbia was not too bad in that respect. So there's a whole lot of aspects that we try and uh, include when we when we give these letter grades, the uh, how easily you can find the numbers, uh, how reliable they are, and the timeliness.
0: Our guest is Bill Robson. He's the president and the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. We're talking about uh, the way that um, certain governments uh, are better than others in terms of their fiscal transparency. When I was mentioning earlier, Bill, the, the descriptors um, on, uh, in, in, in item after item in terms of budgets, uh, when I've gone through the city books, it seems to me that there, there appears to be a budget for things and a budget for stuff. And and it's, it's not it's not clear enough for me to be able to go through it to say oh they're spending this on that how much how important is that for again a motivated but non expert reader to be able to then feel like you you have a you're participating in the understanding of your government
4: it matters a it matters a lot there are a couple of things that you often find one of them and I think this is directly to the point you were making is that. Sometimes uh, governments will uh, throw things into different bins depending on the presentation. Yeah, and so you might see some breakdowns that separate things by, say, wage costs versus other stuff that governments consume, you, and then, uh, it, or it might be by 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 type of thing like policing or defense in the case of the federal government um, and those things if they're not consistent across categories i mentioned the example of looking at the end of year results and trying to figure out did they do what they said in the budget if the if the categories are different well then even if the totals are reconcilable you're still going to have a lot of trouble knowing were they over or under on health or education that type of thing something else that happens uh, is that occasionally they net things uh, now this isn't such a big problem that the uh uh, federal and provincial level as it used to be but you always want to watch out for this i'll mention with the federal government there's a gst credit so-called it's an income support payment it's got nothing to do with whether you paid gst or not but they continue to subtract it from the tax side so there are some taxes people are paying that you don't see in the ledger and there's some spending that the federal government is doing that you don't see in the ledger so that's another thing that's that's objectionable and at the municipal level there's a horrible problem because you talked about things and stuff. Uh, There are capital budgets that are separate from the operating budgets when they, that's at budget time, the upfront stuff, uh, the the forward-looking stuff. At the end of the year, they do their accounting the same way that the federal uh, and and provincial governments do, where you're not showing uh, an outlay of, uh, uh, you know, several million dollars on a pipe that you put in the ground the moment that it happened. You're treating it like a business would. Uh, You uh, write it off over the period that it delivers its services. So that's how they report the results at the end of the year. But at budget time, they're making it look like all of that money is going to get spent right now. And I think that at the uh, municipal level, that creates a problem because capital projects look very expensive that when you when you first do them and then they disappear off the books and so the maintenance doesn't get done so it it sounds like a green eye shade thing uh you know that (laughs) only accountants would care about this but it does have real consequences on the ground
1: well you mentioned the professional standards of accounting that you would hope that everybody has fall in line with but i mean it surprises me that there's no real harmonization or even a push for harmonization with regards to federal municipal and provincial budgets at this point If there's no harmonization here, what recommendations do you have over at the uh, C.D. Howe Institute to improve fiscal transparency across Canada?
4: Well, I'll start with the public sector accounting standards. I mean, you should adhere to them. Uh, Most governments do nowadays. Uh, Unfortunately, British Columbia doesn't, and Ontario also has gone from being uh, in compliance to badly out of compliance in the last couple of years. So uh, you you always have to watch for the backsliding and uh, and try and deal with that if you've nailed that then the next thing that i would go to is the budget is the budget on the same basis so that a person can readily at the beginning of the year say the government's presenting its budget for the upcoming year can you right away look to see compared to what uh, happened last year or what they're projecting to have happened last year where are we going from there those numbers have to be consistent as well and coming at it from the other end once the year's over, can you go back and look at the budget and and see that uh, these things were all squared up? Um, In addition to that, and again, this is just on the consistency of the numbers, like if it says a billion in one place, is it going to say a billion in the other place? The other thing that we've paid more attention to in the last little while, and it's a controversy in Ottawa right now, when the legislators actually vote to authorize specific programs, what they're working from is what's called the estimates and in some provinces and in some uh, at some times the estimates do line up with the budget so that you can say okay we said we we're going to spend a billion and here are the estimates it says a billion so we're, we we vote that and we know it's consistent with the plan in other places they're not the same so just just rewinding to the beginning of this conversation you're motivated you're reasonably intelligent you understand numbers you could be a newly elected uh, member of the legislature How easy is it for you when that vote comes up to understand what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, So, again, the consistency of the numbers is a key thing. If they're consistent, then all that mental effort of figuring out what you're doing, it's not necessary. If it's confusing, I think a lot of uh, legislators ought to be putting their hands up and saying, what's going on here that we're getting numbers that we can't make sense
0: of? So we need a quick answer to this one, but I'm not sure we can get one. Um, Do you have any idea why there's such inconsistency?
4: Well, sometimes it's sometimes governments find it to be politically advantageous to produce these odd numbers. I mean, in Alberta, I referred to how they went to this crazy presentation a few years ago, uh, but if there's enough public pressure, then they'll go back the other way. So I'd say uh, we just need people to be paying attention to the auditor's report. If the auditors like it, that's good. Pay attention to the timeliness. If a government's presenting a budget after the fiscal year has already started, that's ridiculous because they're already spending the money. So there are a number of things that people can ask for. And if you look across the country and you look at the outstanding performers, Alberta this year, uh, New Brunswick this year, if they can do it, anybody can do it.
1: Well, Bill, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Bill Robson, president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Ahead on our podcast,
0: Open Media Executive Director, Laura Tribe.
1: Are low cost data only mobile plans really on their way to becoming a reality here in Canada with us to talk about this issue as well as what Canadians should expect from the EU's new privacy regulations? It is our next guest. She is from the Vancouver based digital advocacy group, Open Media. It's Laura Tribe, the executive director of Open Media. Laura, great to have you back on the program. Thanks
0: for having me. When, when are we going to have a phone that isn't really a phone anymore? It's just it's,
1: it's like, going to be implanted subcutaneously. <laughs> like, yeah, we won't. You know?
0: We won't need. We won't be using the phone feature ever. It's just data, data, oh, data. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I know, get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes it? a lot more sense <laughs> than <laughs> what I was proposing. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah,
1: but yeah, when is it going to be? Data. Yeah.
0: Who uses a phone for a phone anymore?
1: It's been a while for me, personally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Laura? So
5: I think that's really, uh, you know, what is at the heart of what we're talking about at the CRTC, and what's coming up is there is this huge shift to data. I think that's really what the CRTC is trying to address: It's how much data Canadians are using now instead of just the regular phone services and really how expensive it is. Uh, So what happened is the CRTC, recognizing the lack of affordability in data in Canadian cell phone plans, uh, asked Bell, Tellison Rogers to say, what would an affordable data-only plan look like? You know, we're paying so much to have access to talk and text that tacking on data at the end of it feels really expensive. What happens if we just do data? Uh, But unfortunately, it looks like their plan is to make Data only even more expensive than it already is when tacked onto a phone plan.
1: Hmm. Well, you bring that up, uh, Kirk, as well. I I actually did get a phone call on my cell phone just yesterday from my sister, and I I mean, is there an emergency going on? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, that's,
0: and, that's like the last days of my landline. Yeah, it was it was like my mom, it was my mom's <laughs> line. That was what it was. I was just I was paying for a landline for my mom. That's I what I, it was.
1: I called my sister back, and uh, she's like, "Oh yeah, sorry, pocket dial." And so, I mean, that's what it is. And it really makes me think because of the options that Bell, TELUS, and Rogers are offering, it really isn't very encouraging to many people out there. I believe Bell and TELUS, they're offering 500 megabytes or they're proposing 500 megabytes for $30 a month and Rogers 400 megabytes for $25 a month. Are these affordable plans? Are these really realistic with regards to the data consumption that the average Canadian may have, Laura?
5: Uh, In short, no. Uh, There was a study actually released just this week uh, that looked at all of the OECD countries and all of Europe and found that Canada comes in dead last for affordability for data. And that's before these plans come into play. So for the existing data that we have, Canada potentially has the least affordable data in the entire world. And that's part of why we need to look at these new plans. But what we see from the plans put forward by Bell, Tellus, and Rogers is they're less than half of what we're already using on average. So the CRTC put out a study last year that said the Canadians were using about 1.2 gigabytes of data on average. So, you know, that's more than double what the plans are being put forward by these providers. Uh, and is also, you know, based on people already limiting how much they use data, making sure you're connected to Wi-Fi when you're at home or at your office. And then when you take away your phone, if it is an emergency, you're not going to get that phone call from your sister. It's going to come over data, and if she's already hit her data cap, all of a sudden that's a really expensive phone call. So it really goes nowhere close enough to what we're already using data for. So I think that we really have a long way to go before these plans are useful to Canadians.
0: Well, we spend a lot of time on the show, I think, um, shellacking the big three, um, about their, about their plans and all that. Uh, help us understand though, from open media's perspective, Laura, about what you think is the sweet spot here. What kind of plan would satisfy customers, do you think, um, make it relatively affordable and yet also ensure that the telcos are not suddenly filing for uh you know creditor protection. Uh what what do you think? I think what, we're what's a long the sweet way spot? from that.
5: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. Uh but I think, you know, it's a good question. And I think part of why we're having this conversation around data only plans is that there really isn't a one size fits all plan. Uh, people have different needs and different uses and the plans we have available right now aren't meeting that. That said uh, if we are to look at what a data-only plan would look like and what's reasonable, if we take something like the $60 a month for 10 gigabytes plan that was available in December that people lined up around the malls for, it uh, doesn't mean that that's exactly what people need or that that meets all of our needs, but that's something that was so much better than what's being offered that people could do it. And we've seen clearly that the telecoms can do it. That seems like a good starting point, something that's already on the market, but let's take away talk and text. So talk and text usually costs about Thirty to forty dollars, which leaves twenty to thirty dollars of that plan for ten gigabytes of data, which is the same price as what's being offered by the telecoms for twenty times the data.
1: I'll uh, go back and share my own account with regards to the, the sixty-dollar plans uh, with ten gigs. I've been on that. I was one of the the people that had lined up for this deal, and I've actually struggled to get up to ten gigs every single month. <laughs> like, I, I think I've maxed out. My max has been. Five, and that's me watching videos, not being connected to Wi-Fi with. I don't need to be, so it, it is interesting to see. You don't see. have
0: a, you don't have a net. You're not running Netflix across your phone, though. No. You know what? <laughs> that that
1: is true. It, it's not a Netflix
0: uh, deal,
1: <laughs> but it, it is interesting to see. You know, just you know how much data that I can consume within a month long period, and it's about five gigs for me any given month ever since I've been using mm. it up uh, since December. And I, it also begs you know the question about what other options are out there because we. Re- call the CRTC they, they kind of uh, went back against those mobile virtual network operators a few weeks or a few months ago and those are the budget carriers like sugar that were allowing you know uh, people to piggyback simply off the infrastructure of say Rogers in that situation uh-huh. there are the number of options that are available to Canadians do, do they seem to be dwindling at this point are there any is there anything on the horizon that might be out there just uh, available that's more affordable?
5: I mean, I think what we saw in that decision from the CRTC was that they're not really open at this point to what those innovative new ideas are, what those alternative providers look like. Uh, So I think this was their fix in the short term is let's just see what the big three can do. But long term, they're going to need to readdress it. So they've said that in the future, they will open a proceeding over the next year that will look at what providers like Sugar Mobile look like and how they can work. But I think until they actually go ahead and implement that it's going to be a long way out before we start to see those new services so you know we're looking as open media to minister baines uh, from the federal government to see what he's actually willing to do because he does have the ability and the authority to say this isn't enough but we've really seen this constant push from the crtc and from the government to say essentially you need to build the infrastructure yourself Uh, you can't use the infrastructure that already exists. And that's led to where we are now. And every year that we let Bell, Telus, and Rogers further build out their networks is another year behind that any new entrant is in trying to catch up. So I think that until the government actually looks at what this is going to mean for allowing people to access the infrastructure, pay to use it. And I think that's the thing that gets overlooked. Uh, You know, Bell, Tellus and Rogers get paid wholesale rates when people access their mobile networks to provide these services. We see pretty much the same plans across all three providers. We're lucky in Saskatchewan to have SaskTel, we have Videotron in Quebec and some alternatives, but ultimately like we're really seeing every time these new providers come in, they get slammed.
0: Yeah. Laura Tribes, our guest, she's the executive director of open media, regular on our program. when we're talking about issues involving, uh, well, involving telecom. Let's have a look at what's taking place in Europe now and the new privacy provisions under the European union, but they, they don't just have an impact on those in Europe. They have a, an impact even here in Canada. Tell us a little bit about what the the side stream impact is here.
5: So the new privacy rules that are coming into effect in Europe essentially mean that anyone who is in Europe has to be protected, which includes if you're a Canadian company that is serving people living in Europe, if you're working with partner groups in Europe, there's some really broad reaching compliance. Um, I think one of the things that's important to note is Canada's own privacy laws, PIPIDA, um, are actually seen as being GDPR compliant. So if you're following PIPIDA operating in Canada, partners in Europe are able to work with you. Uh, but I think one of the big differences around how the GDPR works versus PIPEDA or any of the Canadian laws is the European laws have teeth. There are serious penalties for not uh, sort of following the rules. Big financial fines, really, really big financial fines. Um, and we don't see that in Canada. There is no real enforcement mechanism in Canada. And it's leading to international companies. You know, We've heard a lot around Facebook trying to figure out what does it look like to give those privacy protections to europeans and maybe not north americans as they try and move their data around to not be subject to these rules Um, as well as you know what do we want in canada for our laws to be able to make sure that we have penalties if things go wrong here in a way that we don't in europe so it's going to be interesting to see how that rolls out and what the implementation looks like as people choose to adopt and implement some of those rules far beyond the european borders
1: You mentioned the very strong penalties. I believe it goes up to as much as 20 million euros or else 4% of global revenue. Do you think the fact that Canadian companies would be looking at the potential there that, you know, of course they would be compliant, but that could be the teeth even if we don't have it here in Canada?
5: Well, I think the trick is for those teeth to work for Canadian companies is the violation needs to happen in Europe. So, you know, it's good to see that, and it's also important to note it's whichever penalty is higher, so if you're, if you're Facebook, that $20 million is nothing for you, you're paying the 4% in your global revenues. Um, I think that, you know, if the violation is happening in Canada to Canadian citizens, we're not subject to that. Um, it would need to be a European citizen that is violated, and I think, you know, it's really great to put those protections on to make sure that Canadians are protecting Europeans. But what does it mean for Canadians to protect Canadians? And how do we make sure that you know, our own privacy commissioner has the same amount of enforcement powers that we're being required to fulfill in foreign countries?
1: Well, Laura, always a pleasure. I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thanks so much for having me. That's Laura Tribe. She's the executive director of the Vancouver-based digital advocacy group, Open Media.
0: That's our podcast for today. Join us next time here on BIB Today.